0: If you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, I just want to kind of set a recap as to where we are in our travels through the book of Genesis. Jacob, old hill catcher, that's what his name actually means. He tricks his father Isaac into giving him the birthright over Harry, his brother Esau. As a result of this deceit, Jacob is forced to flee from his home. Esau wants to kill him. Isaac and Rebekah have decided it best to send Jacob about 500 miles east to Haran to stay for a time with his uncle Laban, at least until Esau calms down. Now, what was to be a temporary stay ends up becoming a permanent layover, which doesn't really bother old Jacob because as soon as he arrives, he starts crushing on his cousin Rachel. That sounds weird, cousin Rachel, But she was a babe, and I guess in that culture, those things were normal. Now, because Jacob obviously needs a place to stay, ultimately he wants to marry Rachel, he and Laban reach an agreement, an accord. Jacob, because he has no money, will spend seven years working for Laban for free in order to satisfy the dowry so he can ask for Rachel's hand. Now, on the wedding night, seven years later, Laban swindles Jacob into marrying not Rachel, whom he had worked for, but Rachel's ugly older sister, Leah. Tragically, Jacob wakes up, rolls over. He thought he married the beauty. It dawns on him he's married the beast. And instead of just trusting the providence of the Lord, instead of trusting that God was in control, Jacob makes a mistake he decides to retroactively work another seven years for Rachel's hand as well. Now, As a result of having these sister wives, Jacob's home is filled with dysfunction. Though the text tells us that Jacob loved Rachel, Rachel had a problem. She was barren, unable to provide children. In contrast, Leah, a woman not loved by her husband, who deeply desired a connection, desired affection. Well, the Lord looked on her compassionately, opened Leah's womb, and she bore Jacob, according to what we looked at last Sunday, four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Now, on a side note, as wedding gifts, Laban gives to Rachel a handmaiden by the name of Bilhah, to Leah, he gives Zilpah. Now, this is important because as we work our way through chapter 30, these two women will also contribute to the dysfunction in Jacob's home. Now, from a macro perspective, why, why are we given this crazy dysfunctional... Why, why are we giving a glimpse into this home? Why is this recorded for us? Clearly, this is not a good representation of Jacob. Uh, this is not putting him out there into a good light. Uh, Not only is he disobeying the Lord by entering into a polygamous relationship, marrying two sisters, his family is a disaster. I mean, really, this is probably the most dysfunctional family, second to King David, you're going to find in the Bible. It's a disaster. So why in the world do we have the last few verses of chapter 29 and then all of chapter 30 dedicated to all of these children? Let me explain from a macro perspective. Jacob, we're going to have the reference, the the record of him having 12 sons, really 11, the, the 12th Benjamin will come later. These 12 sons of Jacob will become known. Their family lineages will play out by which they become 12 individual tribes. We'll see this next Sunday, but Jacob, his name ends up being changed by God from Jacob to Israel. So when you hear the phrase, the 12 tribes of Israel, that's literally saying the descendants of these 12 sons of Jacob. And so, no doubt, Moses, the compiler of Genesis, with this ragtag ragtag nation of slaves coming out of Egypt, about to enter the promised land, Moses is giving them a bit of their history, how they came to be, how these 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 sons of Jacob uh, developed. Let's just dive into the text. Genesis 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? (laughs) I tell you, this Jacob, quite a tender chap, isn't he? He marries two women. Rachel's a babe. Leah, not so much. Then to compound his problems, Jacob is open, makes no bones, doesn't conceal it at all how deeply he loves Rachel. while Leah, not so much. It's terrible. And yet, by the time Leah finally provides Jacob his fourth son, Rachel begins to see something has changed or is changing. Don't forget when Judah was born, what did Leah do? She praised the Lord. And yes, it might have been that she just come to peace with her situation, but the case can be made that she finally finally got what she was desiring. That Jacob recognized that fruit was coming from Leah and not Rachel. That Leah was providing these sons. That Jacob's heart began to tenderize. At the end of his life, Jacob would request to be buried next to Leah and not Rachel. And it might be that after the birth of Judah, that Rachel begins to sense that the tide might be turning. We're told for probably the very first time in her life, Rachel envied her sister Leah. There is no doubt Rachel was still Jacob's arm candy. She was clearly the trophy wife. But that being said, upon seeing the joy that Jacob was having with Leah, the fun that he was having with these four boys, what happens? Rachel's motherly instincts, man, they kick in. And they kick in hard. And what we can assume to be kind of a private moment between Rachel and Jacob, we see Rachel's emotions over her barrenness just come spilling over. They come flooding out. She says, give me children or else I'll die. That's extreme. Rachel is distraught. She's overcome. More than anything in that whole world, All she wants is children. Sadly, instead of listening to the genuine cries of his wife, instead of calming her angst, reassuring his love, dedication, and commitment, instead of bearing Rachel's burdens, reminding her that it wasn't her fault, instead of exhorting her to place her faith in God, reminding her that that Sarah had once been barren as well, But God yielded in time. (laughs) How does Jacob respond? First, we're told he gets angry. Fellas, that's never a good way to start an interaction with your wife. Just a side note. For years, for years, Rachel was the chill sister wife. She was no drama, fun to be around. I imagine that the nights that Jacob spent with Rachel were a relief, a vacation of sort. When you consider how nagging and needy Leah had been. Now, and his home, right? Leah seems to have calmed down, settled in. All was good in one tent. But what's now happened? Now Rachel is discontent. Now she's the one nagging. Jacob just can't get a break. Look at what he says to her in his anger. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? He gets angry and he lashes out. And this is basically what he says to her. Why are you getting on to me? Like, it's not my fault. Like, what can I really do about it? I don't know, Rachel, if you've noticed, I'm having no problems. My soldiers are marching just fine in that other tent. The problem, honey, ain't me. The problem seems to be with you. So get off my back. Why don't you figure out what's going on? I mean, that's really what he's saying. I'm terrible. Verse 3, so Rachel said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. I just, by her name, can't imagine she being a very pretty lady. It's a side note. Here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case. He has heard my voice. Given me a son; therefore, she called his name Dan. Now we've noted this before, but this practice of having a surrogate it wasn't abnormal. And keep that in mind. Even in today's culture, if a woman is unable uh, to have a child, it was a customary, normal process by which a surrogate would step in. Now, now note the child that Bilhah would have would be legally or technically Rachel's child. Jacob would consummate with Bilhah, but legally, Dan would be Rachel's, this fifth son. Well, verse eight, verse seven, Rachel's made Bilhah conceived again, bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name (laughs) Naphtali. The first go around is successful. Rachel is like, let's do it again. Jacob is like, Sweet, sleeping around in my home. My wife is okay, I don't know. He obliges, has a sick son. Notice though, Rachel's reaction to the good news, right? She says, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. And then she says, I have prevailed. Like There is no doubt a very deep, toxic fissure has grown between her and her sister. I mean, they're in a competition vying for Jacob's affections. This is not good. It's actually going to get worse, verse 9. So when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, And gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. That had to have been a fat baby. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I'm happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Seeing Rachel's now catching up right on the the baby front, the competition figuring she's no longer able to conceive herself. Leah steals a page from Rachel's book, offers her handmaiden as well. Jacob gives birth to son seven, Gad, and eight, Asher. Now, Reuben, verse 14, went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Kind of weird, right? And Rachel said, therefore, Jacob will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. <laughs> like, can't you feel the relational strain? The animosity? It's almost like the tension Is so deep, like you could cut it with a knife, according to the text Reuben, who's probably a middle schooler by this point, Jacob's firstborn son with Leah. It's the wheat harvest. He's out helping in the fields. We're told that he stumbles upon some mandrakes in the field, and he brings these mandrakes to his mother Leah. Now, the reason that this is significant is that mandrakes, more specifically, the root- of the mandrake, which was a plant indigenous to the Mediterranean. This root was widely seen in ancient cultures as being medicinal. As a matter of fact, it was used in a lot of sense to treat infertility. And so Reuben is out in the field, stumbles upon what is a prized possession. These mandrakes pulls up the plant, gets the root, runs them back to his mother. This son's taking care of his mom. His mom's unable to have kids right now. He's thinking this will make mom happy. This will take care of the situation. Like, Reuben's taking care of his mother. But, Rachel, Rachel catches word that Reuben has brought Leah some mandrakes. And, well, naturally, she wants in on the action to treat her infertility as well. Now, now don't forget, Leah has had sons. Rachel still by this point has not been able to conceive on her own without the aid of a surrogate. She's desperate. <laughs> She's begging her sister. Think of it as medicine. Now, this is how hard this relationship has become. Can you just give me some? Just a little a little bit. And what's Leah's reaction? You took away my husband. Mic drop. Like, we want to talk about being fair? We want to talk about doing a solid? You took away my husband. Like, now the truth comes out, right? Why there's so much animosity. Sensing Leah was not going to show her any kindness. Quick thinking, Rachel proposes a trade. She says, look at it again. If you give me the mandrakes, I'll make sure Jacob sleeps with you instead of me tonight. <laughs> Rachel is so desperate to have children. She's literally willing to prostitute her husband in order to get these mandrakes. Well, when Jacob, the old boy, came out of the field in the evening. And by the way, on a side note, if you've, if you've ever been entertaining polygamy, Like, look no further than this dysfunction. Like, just on a side note, don't go down that road. So Jacob comes out of the field. It's the evening. And Leah goes out to meet him and said, you must come into me tonight. (laughs) And it gets romantic. "For, For I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. Now, if I'm Jacob, I'm like, Yo, like, this just seems a little off. Like, What's going on? And yet, look at the reaction. None. He laid with her that night. Oh, good. <laughs> at least y'all working it out. It's Tuesday. I'm supposed to be with Rach, but if Rach made a deal, good for her, I'll go lay with you. So God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son, a fifth son by her. So Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Now, much to her chagrin, Rachel's plan, it blows up in her face. Leah sleeps with Jacob, conceives, ends up bearing two more sons, her fifth Issachar and sixth Zebulun, which brings Jacob's total number of sons to 10. We're also told, after all of this, Leah bore a daughter called her name Dinah. Now, Dinah. She's recorded here. She's the only daughter recorded. Now, that doesn't mean that she was the only daughter Jacob had. According to the genealogies, uh, the seed, the lineage, was passed down from man to man, meaning that there's not a lot of women recorded in the genealogical records. In this instance, she's recorded for us because she will play out later in 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 another story in Genesis. The idea, though, is that Jacob probably had a lot of other daughters in addition to this, just this one, meaning he's got quite a brood, growing. Verse 22, so God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, and man, you can imagine the exhale, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. How interesting, right? This phrase kind of marks this transition, right? God remembered Rachel. Now understand, this word in the Hebrew, it doesn't imply that God had forgotten about her, that there was some plans that God had set aside for Rachel that he had just, man, I just totally forgot about you. So focused on these other women, I had forgotten about you, Rachel. That's that's not the idea. The implication of this word remembered is that God is making a, a conscious decision to center now his work in her life. It's now time to enact a plan. The word tells us that God is now going to be active. And we got to consider that what prompted, like what change prompted God's intervention. Now, As it pertains to the flow of the text, the mandrakes are powerless, Right? She trades Jacob for the mandrakes. Leah's got no mandrakes. Lays with Jacob, has some babies. She's got the mandrakes, hitting up the mandrakes hard. Laying with Jacob, still no babies. The mandrakes failure. And now J- Rachel. She reverts to the only thing, that she hasn't tried. She prays. Now understand. It's stark contrast to the faith that we've seen demonstrated in the life of Leah. This is the very first time we see any type of spirituality stemming from Rachel. Within our text, we find Rachel using two different names for God. First, in this statement, God has taken away my reproach. This word God it's the classical title Elohim. What makes that interesting is that in addition to being a masculine noun, Elohim, we've seen that before. In the beginning, God created. It's the word Elohim. It's a masculine noun. But in addition to that, it's a plural word being used in a singular context. So it's masculine, which is why we see the masculinity of God. It's within the Hebrew word for God himself. El, the masculine, Elohim. Masculine noun, plural, meaning gods, but used in a singular tense. Gods. There is but one God existing in three persons. It's a beautiful picture and representation of the triune nature of God, the Trinity, which is significant. Because in using this word, Rachel is making a major worldview concession. She had grown up in Haran. This is Babylon. It's polytheistic. They believed in a pantheon of gods. They had a God for everything. And yet Rachel, growing up within that culture, steeped in that worldview, has come to the conclusion that there is but one God. The God of Jacob. And the God of Isaac. And the God of Abraham. But secondly, she uses another word. This statement, the Lord shall add to me another son. This word Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your text. The reason it's in caps is that we don't have the vowels. The reason we don't have the vowels is that this was the personal name for God. And the Hebrews wanted no one to utter the name, the personal name of God. So they took the vowels out. In the original, it's just capital W, uh, capital Y, H, W, H. We don't know if it's Yahweh or Jehovah. But this is the personal name for God, which is another interesting development. Whereas Elohim spoke of God's eternal nature, who he was, Yahweh was the term by which God would reveal himself to an individual. This means that in Rachel's life, her worldview had changed she had rejected these polytheists as pantheon of false gods to accept the real God, and that real God had revealed Himself to her, giving her His personal name. He says, "God Elohim," but then she also calls Him Lord, which is a term of endearment. You see, I'm under the impression that what had changed in Rachel's life. The very development that had prompted God to open her womb so that she'd conceive and bear a son was her decision to place her faith in Jacob's God and to turn to the Lord, Yahweh, in her distress. As we'll see, Joseph. Joseph will end up demonstrating quite a powerful spiritual acumen. And I think he gets that from his mother Rachel. Understand. Spiritual barrenness is the status quo for all those separated from God by sin. You see apart from the direct involvement of God, it is impossible. You will never be spiritually fruitful. Leah bore fruit right from the beginning because she demonstrated a relationship with God. Rachel was barren because she didn't. Rachel did everything she could to yield life on her own, didn't she? She even used her husband to barter with Leah for mandrakes, only to then watch her sister conceive yet again. Maybe it was in this moment that Rachel came to recognize it wasn't mandrakes. It was Leah's relationship with God that was making her fruitful, that was producing from her life. Leah conceived, not because of some magical root, but on account that God listened to her. Friend, if your life is fruitless, if you aren't seeing a greater godliness emerge, if you aren't seeing the development of spiritual vitality, if you aren't growing more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, if you feel stagnant, if you feel stale, if you feel stuck, if you feel barren, please, this morning, reject the mandrakes of religious moralism that peddle things for you to do to remedy the problem instead of appealing that you would cry out to the God who listens. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit yields in us love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of God's Spirit, a work of God in you that works its way out of you. If you're barren, the remedy isn't mandrakes, but it's to cry out to the Lord, asking him to take what is dead and to bring it to life. Well, it came to pass, verse 25, when Rachel had bored Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Now, for context, Jacob has been working for Laban approximately 20 years, Not only did he labor seven years for Leah, seven more for Rachel, but he's continued to work another six years. It's interesting, but while we don't know what exactly sparked this desire within Jacob to leave, the text does infer that there was something about Joseph's birth in particular that stirred this desire that maybe he should be moving on. So Jacob continues, he says give me my wives and my children for whom I I've served you and let me go for you know my service which I have done for you and Laban said to him please stay for if I have found favor in your eyes for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake then Jacob then Laban said name me your wages and I will give it though Jacob is expressing his desire to leave. Not leave in a few months, but to leave immediately. Laban rightly understood Jacob had been rather good for business. This statement, I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. It's interesting. Now, don't forget Laban wasn't a believer, wasn't a convert. Laban is a pagan idolater. He is also a polytheist who believes in a pantheon of false gods. And yet he does something interesting. He uses what? The name Lord, capital L-O-R-D, to describe whom? Jacob's God. And Laban admits that through his experience with Jacob, he had come to recognize that Jacob's God was real that God's hand was clearly on his life and that all the blessings that Laban had been enjoying came as a byproduct. Blessing had come to Laban's home because of God's presence in Jacob's life. Can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer that because I'm going to ask you a question anyway. What does your life say about Jesus? Jesus. Do people see Jesus manifesting in and through you? When they interact with you, when the world does, your coworkers, people at the ballpark, fill in the blank. When people interact with you, come in contact with you, do they experience, do they walk away having experienced a measure of the divine? Do people see fruit of God's spirit? Are the people around you witnessing a transformation so radical, it can only be attributed to a supernatural influence. Do people concede your God must be real for his presence in your life is undeniable? Are you being salt, flavor, and light to the dark world around you? It's been said that you might be the only Bible some people ever read now consider what reality in Jacob's life was so apparent Laban had to concede God was real because right now you're thinking about all the things you do and you're kind of starting to beat yourself up there's kind of a a ripple of condemnation be like man I totally failed at that you asked me a question I answered it and I didn't like the answer it's terrible thanks pastor I feel this big okay cool I do too. We're all together. But this is what blows me away, because this is what it was about Jacob that Laban recognized. It was so mind-blowing, right? Was it Jacob's obedience that caught Laban's attention? (laughs) No. Dude was a swindler from the day he arrived. Was it Jacob's, you know, vast understanding of scriptural things? that really impressed old Laban. Man, that dude can quote so much scripture. Jesus must be inside of him. No, no, it wasn't that. Like, was it the way that Jacob treated his wives (laughs) or his family? Let's just go out there. Was, Was it anything that Jacob had done or was presently doing? No. You see, Laban, Laban met Jacob, and what did he say? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. (laughs) I'm a swindler. Swindlers, no swindlers. A con man knows a con. Laban knew Jacob, knew him well. He knew what kind of man he was, and yet, and yet, what caught his attention? What caught his attention was that God's grace was demonstrated to Jacob In spite of Jacob, I know you and God still blesses you and I know you and God still blesses you and I know you, but God is still blessing you. There's no rational explanation for this at all. It's God's grace. You see, that's what the world will see. Man, I knew you, and I know you, but God's doing something in you and through you, but I still know you. I need to meet that God because that's not like any other God this world has to offer. God's grace. Well, with all this in mind, you can understand then why Laban proceeds to tell Jacob, bro, I need you to stay. So name your wages. And while Jacob felt a call to leave, Laban does everything he can to entice him to stay. And the irony, right, is that this is not the first time Laban has offered Jacob a name your own price proposition. If I had been Jacob and Laban's like, name your wages, I'd be like, I've been there, done that, no thank you. That got me stuck with Leah. And yet, Jacob's like, I got this guy right where I want him. So Jacob said, you know how I have served you, how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little, but it's increased to a great amount. And the Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I provide for my own house? So Laban said, what do I give you? Jacob replies, you shall not give me anything. If you will do me this one thing, I'll feed and keep your flocks. Verse 32, let me pass through all of your flock today. And we're going to read something that's really weird, okay? And I don't fully understand it, and we're going to kind of work through it. Let me pass through your flocks today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep. And all the brown ones among the lambs. And the spotted and speckled among the goats. These will be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in the time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it's with me. And Laban said, Oh, that's a deal, that it's according to your word. Now, understand, instead of payment, a wage, Jacob wants a part of Laban's flock that he can use to kind of start his own seed money, an investment. Now, knowing purebred goats were black, I don't know if you knew that, lambs, purebred, were white, making those two more valuable. What does Jacob do? He asks Laban to give to him the lesser valued, speckled and spotted from among his herd to be his wage. Okay, you with me? So Laban removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white in it and all the brown ones among the lambs gave them to the hands of his sons. Then he put three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Just pause. Now that the terms are agreed upon, the flocks have been separated. So that's what happened that day. The terms, it seems, stipulated that Laban's sons, so the sons of Laban's, Jacob's nephews, would take care of his flock of speckled and spotted. And they were removed a three days' journey, so they were separated. Jacob would continue to spend his time, his focus, on caring for Laban's flock of purebreds. Okay, you with me? Speckled and spotted over here, ran by Laban's sons. Purebreds over here, Jacob's still taking control, taking care of them, because that's how Laban uh, has been prospering. Now, from that day moving forward, any time it would appear that this speckled and spotted herd of Jacob's would produce a purebred, which was unlikely because of genetics, it would come back to Laban's flock. But any time in Laban's flock of purebreds, an offspring would get yielded that was speckled and spotted so it wasn't pure, it would be sent to Jacob's, okay? So there's a back and forth that's happening. Now, keep in mind, what this incentivizes Jacob to do is to figure out some way to get these purebreds to produce not-so-purebreds, these speckled and spotted. Now, his strategy here is weird. And the way he's going to go about it I I don't believe there's any science to it. Um, Let's just look at it. So Jacob, he's wanting to tweak the offspring, the old swindler. He took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees. He peeled white strips in them, exposed the white which was in the rods. Duh, right? And the rods, which he had peeled, Jacob set before the flocks in the gutters, which is the watering troughs, where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So maybe there's an aphrodisiac of some kind within these strips of trees. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaks speckled and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flock's face towards the streaked, and all the brown in the flock of Laban. And he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. It came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock and the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. But when the livestock were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's. The stronger Jacobs, thus the man became exceedingly prosperous, had large flocks, female, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. Now, <laughs> literally, go read every commentary, some dumb ex- explanation. Like there's, I don't know. I don't know. If you're into farming and you're like, I've been using that trick for years. <laughs> then, sweet. I don't, I don't know. Now, what I can say is that obviously, Jacob wants these purebred goats and sheep to yield speckled and spotted offspring so he can keep them. Not only did he believe that placing these branches into the watering troughs seemed to increase the results he desired, but then he employs selective breeding to accomplish his aim as well. Regardless of how any of this worked or doesn't work scientifically, the chapter does end with Jacob clearly experiencing the blessings of God. Look at it. He's been blessed with 11 sons. He's been blessed with an untold number of daughters. But we read, quote, the man became exceedingly prosperous. In the ancient Hebrew, this verse reads, the man burst out exceedingly, exceedingly. In closing, please consider the, like the, the overall arch of Jacob's story. Because I think this gives us some context to what's really going on here. Why this is included in the text. Though chosen by God, from birth to receive the birthright. Jacob still felt inclined, didn't he, to purchase it from Esau when he was dying of hunger for a bowl of soup. Jacob was ordained by God to receive the blessing. But what did Jacob do? He hatched a deceitful plot with his mother to steal it from his father anyway. While we can assume that God had a wife in mind for Jacob, instead of trusting the Lord to provide, he ends up deciding he's going to earn one, work for one. Seven years of hard labor from Laban. And when that plan took an unexpected turn, Jacob still failed to see the, the providential hand of God and foolishly chooses to labor another seven years so he can marry Rachel in addition to Leah. Though it's it's likely that God wanted to bless Jacob with many sons. Instead of letting God work, God's way and in God's timing, what does Jacob do? He capitulates to feuding wives, sleeps around with four women, which only compounds the dysfunction within his own home. Beyond this, when he should have obeyed the Lord's stirring, when he should have left Laban upon the birth of Joseph, trusting that God would provide for his needs, trusting that God would bless him, trusting that God would care for his family, what does Jacob do? He hatches another scheme to gain wealth via human ingenuity. You know, if Abraham illustrates for us how God's grace remains sufficient in the presence of overt human failure. And didn't we see that? Over and over and over again, Abraham falls flat on his face. He fails more than he succeeds. And yet God still remained faithful because of his grace. And if that's what Abraham's life communicates, the big picture then Jacob illustrates how God's grace remains sufficient in the presence of unnecessary human involvement. In a sense, Jacob represents religion. Let me define religion. Religion is a human scheme to earn the blessed life that God intends to bestow via the mechanism of his grace. Religion gives you a ladder to climb in the pursuit of pleasing God when grace is a tree on Calvary upon which God climbed down from heaven and allowed himself to be nailed to to let you know he loves you. Religion is what you can do to earn when it's all about a relationship. What God has done to demonstrate is much different. Don't forget, this point had been the entire purpose of the dream that Jacob had been given at Bethel. God was trying to tell Jacob that he didn't need to strive to attain the blessing that God wanted to give him. Jacob was sound asleep, and he sees this ladder And upon this ladder at the top, there's God and there's angels ascending and descending. Jacob, just relax. Trust me. Chill out. Quit getting in my way, man. Let me do my thing. See, tragically, the notion that God didn't need Jacob's help to accomplish his will in his life was something that Jacob still, even at this point, can't understand. There's a prophecy when he's born. It's the birthright. He buys it anyway. The blessing, it's yours. He tricks his dad into attaining it anyway. Everything he's doing, God's like, I want to bless you. And he's like, I got it, God. Cool. You and me, tag team, dynamic duo. It's stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid. Okay, quick analogy of how stupid it is. I love basketball. I love watching basketball. I'm not real big into physical exertion. (laughs) I'm five foot eight and white and have about a two and a half inch vertical. But I can tell you this, I can tell you this right now, you ready? If it's me and LeBron James playing two on two, we'd take on any of you and win. Right? Now, how silly would it be, me and LeBron taking on you, for me to be like, LeBron, I got this. <laughs> Clunk, right? No, like, we'll win. It's ours. The victory's ours. But what's my only job? Literally not to move. It's to take the ball and be like, to LeBron. So he can like 360 tomahawk slam over top of you. And then I'm like, yeah, we did that. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'd be racking up a lot of assists. I'm just saying. Like what Jacob is doing here is like God's like, I've got the win for you, man. It's you and me. I'm going to do this. There should be way more of me and not much of you. Just relax. Just relax. You see, Jacob, he couldn't get it through his mind yet that God didn't need his help. And while at this point in our story, there is no doubt that God has blessed Jacob in spite of him and not because of him. And I love the fact, C.H. McIntosh wrote, the more man sinks, the more God's grace rises. And ain't that a glorious truth? But here's the other truth that we should not fail to recognize this morning. Because Jacob can't let go and simply let God work, his life, while blessed, is a complete mess. Do you understand that? unnecessarily. It's a mess. Jacob has ruined his relationship with his brother Esau. He's alienated himself from his mom and dad. He's been forced to flee the promised land. He's created a totally dysfunctional home life. As we'll see next Sunday, he eventually tarnishes his reputation with Laban. Friend, while it's true your life is blessed because God's grace always remains sufficient, You can minimize the messes if you stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard to be the person only God can make you. Please understand, God doesn't need your help. And if you, via pride, choose to wrestle with God, as we'll see next Sunday, God is more than willing to wrestle right back. So Father, it's with that word.